Every year, many people travel to India to, to try to, you know, for vacation. About three million people a year travel to India. And you can probably imagine the one place that they most come to is the Taj Mahal. That's exactly right. There's some other unbelievable places there, but the Taj Mahal is the one that gets more tourists than anything else in India. It's one of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. It's a place that's being preserved because it's, been, it's had struggles over the hundreds of years, but they're trying to make sure they keep it up. Many of you know about the story of the whole thing. It's a remarkable structure. It was built in the 17th century. It took 20 years of work using 20,000 workers to build the Taj Mahal, and it's considered a classic place in India. And as you're probably aware, the Taj Mahal came about by the fact that uh, Shah Jahan, who was the, the Mughal ruler at that time, that what he did is he, he had a wife that he loved, a woman named Mumtaz Mahal, last name Mahal, Mumtaz Mahal. Uh, she was pregnant, she had a baby, and in the course of having her baby, she died. And he was absolutely heartbroken over the fact that this wife, this woman he loved so deeply, that he decided that he was going to build an appropriate monument to remember her. And what a monument that was. 20 years, 20,000 workers, and a building today that's still considered one of the great places of the world to visit. And it is interesting to think, here's a guy that had such love for his wife, such care for her, that he would build this place that she'd be remembered years and years, centuries later. It's quite a remarkable story, but what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at a passage that, again, looks at an incredible love. It's a passage that has a lot in it, and it's a, and it's a great passage. But you can understand that the story of Mumtaz and how she died and how he wanted to make this beautiful sepulcher for him, you wonder, what did the people there around the area think about all this? Well, I guess some of the people liked it. For 20 years, they had jobs. That was good. But when it was all over, what did they think about it? I mean, you know, like, isn't this a little over the top? I mean, think of the money that was spent to build the Taj Mahal. They could have built schools and clinics, uh, if they had them back then, I guess, and uh, all, you know, roads, the kind of thing that they, all these things. Really? Spending that much money for one woman to remember her? But the reality was, to him, it didn't seem extravagant because of his love for her. And in our passage this morning, in fact, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to get a little snippet of extravagant love. And it's going to be a lot more than that, too. It's going to look at extravagant love. It's going to look at Jesus now coming closer and closer to the cross. And so this is a great passage, and I encourage you, if you would, to look at if you, uh, this passage. Let me bring you, remind you a little bit of last week. Most of you are here, some were not, just to clue you into the passage. Last week, we were in Mark chapter 13. It was a very important chapter. And if you remember that, what happened is, Jesus, at that point, leaves the temple. He'd been going every day into the temple and teaching. But in chapter 13, you may remember from last week, he leaves the temple, and he's never coming back. That was his last time to leave the temple before all this would now start taking place. So he's left the temple. They've gone up to the Mount of Olives. It's about 150 feet higher than where the temple was. And they're looking down at this magnificent temple, one of the great structures of the ancient world. A lot of gold was used. So when it was sunny, it was out. It was just unbelievably bright. And so what happened, of course, you remember the deal. His disciples said, oh, look at, look at Jesus. Isn't this a beautiful temple? And remember what happened. Jesus stuns them by saying, see this beautiful temple? 
going down. It's going to be destroyed. And they're like, what? Again, this is like, the, this is the temple. This is the place where man meets God. This is the place, of, this is a special place for us. It was like, you know, both, both their history and all of that was to put together in this. And so they're saying, not the temple. Jeez, don't let this happen, Lord. And you remember what we saw last week as he said, listen, there's terrible times. And we saw he had this strange person that appears three times in the book of Daniel. And that's what's called the abomination of desolation. Now, please don't name your kids that, all right? You know, there's some strange names out there, but don't ever call your newborn kid abomination of desolation, all right? And the question, what exactly does that mean? It probably, and again, we're not sure, it may have gone back to Antiochus Epiphanes in 164 when he desecrated the temple, bringing pig his flesh into the Jewish temple. It could be in just a few years after Jesus died in 70 AD in the first Jewish war when Titus went into the temple and defiled it. But ultimately, we said it's not just looking back, and it's not just looking at Jesus' time, but looking ultimately to the end. And that end is what we often refer to, and Paul calls it, the man of lawlessness. We would call it Antichrist, the one that's opposed to God, the one that's opposed to mankind. So our that's our background in the passage. And so look, if you would, if we come to chapter 14, and let's just look at the first couple verses. After two days, it was the Passover on the Festival of Unleaded Bread. Just pause there for a moment. These were originally two festivals that over time were put together. Now, Passover is one we know best, and it was the most famous one because it took them back to the story of the Exodus, how there after the last plague, they put the, they put the blood on the doorframe, and if the angel of death saw it, he would pass over, and they would not be taken away as would the Egyptians and their firstborn son. And so Passover and Festival of Unleavened Bread kind of merged together to be one seven-day event. And so while this is going on, remember, thousands of people are coming from the north where Jesus is at working, up in Nazareth, up in the northern area, and they're coming down here for the festival. It's a huge thing that they're doing. It said the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a treacherous way to arrest and kill him. But they said, not during the festival, where there may be rioting among the people. They were very aware that many of the people up in the northern part where Jesus was at very much respected Jesus. Maybe some already believed that he was their Messiah. And so they're saying, we've got to be really careful here. There's a lot of those you know, yokels up north who are coming down here, and they like Jesus. And so if we try to kill him at this point, this could be a real problem. And so they said, we're not going to do that. Now, what's interesting here, we have two verses that tell us about what's happening among the leadership. Like, they want to get rid of Jesus. And then what you've got is this little passage, so beautiful about love, that's stuck in there. And then it goes back to the story about what these guys are doing. Look, if you would, at verse 3. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany at the house of Simon, who had a serious skin disease, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar and expensive fragrant oil of nard. Let's stop there for a minute. It says, while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon, who had a serious skin disease, a lot of your translations might say Simon the leper. That's got much more of a punch than Simon the man with a serious skin disease. It's correct but it doesn't have that mm to it that ought to go with it. Uh, remember when we talked about this earlier in the Gospel of Mark, as it's talking about the fact that 
Leprosy back then was not just one disease. It was a broad term for any kind of skin disease. Leprosy, of course, the Hansen's disease was a terrible thing. That's the one we think of most. But there were other skin diseases that were cured at times, and people would get better. And the fact that this guy's going to be in a room with Jesus and many people telling you if he had leprosy, it was over. I mean, that, or at least these, this guy was clean, considered clean, and he could do this. So it was Simon, who had a serious skin disease, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of pure and expensive fragrant oil of nard. As you remember, nard is very rare. It's found in the northern part of India and to Nepal. Uh, very rare, very expensive. And of course, when you turn it in and get it all worked up into a, a liquid kind of deal, it was extremely expensive. It's really hard at times to know uh, when you're talking about this, what does it cost? What would it come out to? And Different, I was looking at different commentaries. They, it's really hard to know. One of them said that this thing, if she had a full flask, alabaster flask, full of nard, that could be worth as much as $25,000. This was like something that a mother would give to her daughter as like, you know, as an endowment or something like that, something to keep. This was something very, very precious. And so what happens is, you know, here this woman comes, and she's coming. This is a special time. We're getting very day, only days away from the, the Passover time. And, of course, it's very common when a person at that culture in that time, they would come for the evening that somebody would put a little, maybe a little pour a little bit of virgin olive oil on you and kind of spread that around. And it was a way of honoring a person, making them both look good, but saying we honor you and we respect you kind of deal. And so that would have been one thing to do that. You know, it's one thing. It says, though, in the passage, she broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation. Let's just stop right there. Again, this is not just a little bit of stuff coming down. This is a big deal. For example, one commentator said this. Um, he talked about, or what, sorry, wrong thing. He said this, Jesus is not so much anointed as drenched in fragrant oil. In other words, he's damp, he's wet. This stuff is running down him, going on the dirt floor. Now, if this is correct that maybe this is worth $25,000, and you just watch somebody pour it over a guy and watching it settle into the dirt of the floor, what would you be thinking? Particularly all of us practical kind of people. You just got to be practical in all these kind of things. What would we be thinking at that point? Well, you imagine what a lot of people think. This is not a minor deal. This is a big deal. And so it said, the response is, she said, but some, verse 4, were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this fragrant oil been wasted? For this oil might have been sold for more than well, 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. I mean, they're practical people. I mean, let's think about it. Let's assume that $25,000 is correct. It may not be, it may be more, it may be less. But it's saying, what could we have done with this money? I mean, you, you know, all around us, there's poor people. All around us, there's beggars, particularly in that culture, even today in parts of the Middle East. There's beggars everywhere. We could help them. We could give them a good meal. Maybe there's something we could do to help them physically or in terms of their struggles. All the things you could come up with, you could do. What could you do if God just gave you $25,000 to help people? There's a lot of things you could come up with. And so it's understanding. I'm understandable that people would say, I just can't believe this. $25,000 of pure nard now soaking into the dirt floor of this house? What is the point of that? 
Now, in that culture that time, now coming into Passover, it was very common that people would give a special gift, and that went to help the poor. And, of course, the Old Testament is full of passages about compassion for the poor, helping the poor. But this is some, seems so strange, because he's saying, why would they do that? Why did he do this? Isn't this a waste? And so if you notice that verse again, verse 5, this oil may have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Then Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a noble thing for me. I always think about what the disciples thought when they heard that. Gulp, uh, okay, I still don't quite get it. Look at the floor. Look at your clothes. It's nard, Jesus. Do you know how expensive this is? You keep telling us to have compassion for the poor, and she pours it in the dirt. She said, she's done a good thing here. And so what happens? It said, they, they said, she said, she has done a noble thing for me. You'll always have the poor with you, and you can do good to them whenever you want, but you will not always have me. In other words, he's not saying don't care for the poor. Of course you do. And you're going to have lots of opportunities to care for poor people. They're everywhere around you. But you know how much time you've got to spend with me and to show your love for me? Almost nothing. He doesn't come out and say it. I'm heading for the cross in the next couple of days. But he knows clearly that as he talks about in the Gospel of John, his time has come. All this is about to come down on top of him. And so he says at this passage, you always have the poor with you, and you can do good to them whenever you want, but you'll not always have me. Verse 8, she has done what she could, and she's anointed my body in advance for burial. And he asks the question, did this woman know that she was in one sense preparing this for Jesus' burial? Not at all. All she knew is she loved Jesus. He was worth it. Jesus is worth it. And because of that, she does it. Jesus, you know what? Even though she's not aware of this, here's what's happening. She's preparing me for what's coming. And so he said, she has done a good thing. She's anointed my body in advance for burial. What this woman did not know, what disciples did not know, that in a few days, he's going to be anointed again. And maybe even some nard was going to be put on and some other of these spices. But when they did that to him a few days later, it's because he's dead. And they would take the dead person's body and they'd put oils on it and they would put different spices and they'd wrap him up and put him in the grave. So Jesus is saying, well, he, she's anointing me now and you'll be anointing me soon enough. But the next time you do this, it's because I'm dead. And maybe you don't understand that. And you think this is a waste that she pour that much nard. Waste it for me. But you know what? She loved well. In a sense, she realized, I'm worth it. And whatever the cost, whatever it would be, she was willing to do that. So notice it said, verse 7, you'll always have the poor with you, and you can do them whatever you want, but you won't always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body in advance for burial. I assure you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. Now, what's interesting in that passage is, that's great, we're glad she did this, but the question is, who is she? It's like, we really don't know. One of the commentators said this, talking about this value of Jesus. The value of a gift signals the value of the person to whom it's given. 
The extravagance of the woman shows that she alone understands Jesus' incommensurable worth. And he's saying, that's what it's about. He says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. It's been almost 2,000 years since that event. And here we are in Richardson, Texas, still remembering this woman. Do we know her name? No, I don't think we do. Now, it's a possibility. There's some commentators that understand that this passage is very similar to what we have in the Gospel of John. Uh, I don't think it is. I think it's a separate event, but it doesn't matter. Either way, if it was Gospel John with the same one describing the same event, well, then it was probably Martha who this woman was. I think it's unlikely it was her. It makes a better story if it's her, uh, but I don't think it is. In fact, I don't think there's actually a reason why we don't know her. It's kind of like there's this anonymous woman who loves Jesus, and it's basically saying, you know what, it's not about her. It's about her love and the love that she had for Jesus. And it keeps the focus not on so much who she is, but what she did out of love. And here we are almost 2,000 years later since an incident, and we're still talking about a love of a woman that we don't even know her name. The good thing is the Lord knows her name. He knows that this is the woman who showed such extravagant love. Now look with me, if you would, what happened going on here in verse 10. We said we started off with talking about the leadership and what they're trying to kill Jesus. Then we have this beautiful story of the woman. Now it comes back in verse 10. Now we start seeing things starting to go very, very bad. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to hand him over to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him silver. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. It's an amazing passage here in the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, he often keeps it real tight and real trim. But he kind of does this here because we go from this unbelievable picture of love to now something very different. One of Jesus' own men are going to betray him. About three or four weeks ago, I got an interesting email that came in from one of the groups that keeps sending out stuff. But it was interesting. They had a story about a guy named D.A. Carson. Some of you know him or have read of him. He's a terrific New Testament scholar. And he wrote this little article. It was very interesting. He wrote an article talking about the struggles we go through in life. And he talked about the fact that when he was a young man with his parents, they did experience true persecution as a family because they were missionaries. He talked about as a young man the struggles he went through and the hurts. He talked about some of the issues that happened. He talked about his wife who had a severe uh, time dealing with cancer. She, at that point, was in recovery and seemed to be doing well. But what was fascinating what he said is that I have been, my wife and I have gone through some very difficult, some very dark times, some times where I thought I'd never make it. And what he said, he said, what I've discovered, and he's, he's, getting, he's getting up in years, what I've discovered over the years, the things that have hurt me most, he said, this has been it. He said, being betrayed by a Christian friend. So I could deal with the cancer I could deal with the rest of it. I can't deal with Christian friends who betray me. And I thought that was fascinating to think here. It's like, you know, why is it that that happens so often? Sometimes it's kind of like, hey, you're Christians. You got to forgive me, huh? We're going to be okay. Are we fine? Like, no, I'm sorry. But here, think of that in light of what D.A. Carson said. And think of that in light of Jesus. Judas had been with Jesus now for almost three years. 
if our chronology is right. He'd been there for almost three years. He'd seen Jesus heal people. He'd seen Jesus show compassion. They saw Jesus do remarkable things, bringing people back from the dead. All of this, he saw this love. And yet here, when they come to Jerusalem, at that moment where all this is going to take place, Judas decides he'll take the money. Now, it doesn't tell us here much about, it tells them about taking the money. It doesn't tell a lot about motivation. Uh, Mark, excuse me, Matthew tells a little bit about how he wanted the money. He was the treasurer. That's probably part of it. There's all kinds of theories of what were the other things that would cause a man like to do that. Well, you know, there's a lot of things that people can do that are totally irrational that you'll never quite understand. Some people believe, and this is maybe a good possibility, that, you know, he thought maybe at this point there was going to be something that Jesus was going to do, and he's going to get rid of the Romans, and they're going to, he's going to bring in the kingdom, and now, you know, this is not happening. Maybe that contributed. We don't know. But the point was, Judas is a person who made a choice to betray Christ. We see what happens. Look, if you would, but pick up the reading there in verse 11. When they heard this, they were glad, and they promised to give him silver. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now in verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover the lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so you may eat it? He said to his disciples and told them, go into the city, and a man carrying a water jug will meet him. Follow him. It's like, a uh, guy carrying a water jug? There's going to be probably like a thousand people carrying water jugs. But maybe, they say culturally, it was more common a woman would carry the water. A man would not. If it was, it was usually a slave. So it may be that just look for the guy who's not a slave and is a male, and he's carrying the water. That's the guy you need to go. So in other words, Jesus tells him, here's what you need to do. And so what happens, it says, first in verse 14, it said, follow him. Whenever he enters, tell the owner of the house, quote, the teacher says, he says, where is the guest room for me to eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he told them as they prepared the Passover. It's interesting to talk there. He said he sent the disciples, went out. They went to talk about two of them going out, the two of his disciples in verse 13. It reminds you in the previous passage where Jesus has also went out with the two, telling about getting the donkey to ride on. So we have these things. But what's going on? Why is that important? It's because what is happening is, one, is Jesus showing that he knows what's going on. But the other part is what Jesus is doing is showing that he is totally in control of what is happening here. Sometimes people talk about Jesus. Oh, poor Jesus. It all came bad for him. Wasn't that bad? He, you know, he's just a good guy. Why did that have to happen? Jesus was always in control from beginning to end. And it's making the point saying, this was not some shock. Oh my goodness, they killed them. It's like, this is the purposes of God being fulfilled. Even in the evil, which is taking place with Judas. And the fact that God is going to bring great glory out of that. And bring salvation to all by faith in Christ. And so what we have in verse 16, the disciples went out, entered the city, found it just as he told them, they prepared the Passover. Verse 17, when evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining knees in jeans, Jesus said to them, I assure you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. Did you ever stop and think what that meal must have been like from that point on? How could you sit around and have a, hey, how's food? Yeah, great, great. And you're thinking, maybe it's this guy. 
Hey, uh, how things going? Uh, yeah, maybe it's that guy over here. He's got that funny look in his face. I think maybe it's him. So here they're in one of these things that's supposed to be one of the most special times in their life, in their, in their ministry with Jesus. And they're wondering, really? Can it really be that somebody in our own group, it would be one thing if it was somebody from the outside, but somebody from our own group could do this? Verse 19, so they began to be distressed and said to him one by one, surely not I, not me, is it right? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread with me in the bowl. Looks like Judas would be on the one side, and he took it. And it said, for the Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. But notice this next phrase. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better for that man if he'd not been born. Verse 21 is a very significant verse in the Gospel of John. Because what you have there is two seemingly, unbelievably, impossible to bring together, two big themes. One is the sovereignty of God, and one is man's free will. And yet, in this passage, you see the sovereignty of God taking place in the midst of his sin, his choice. Now, if you're going to be able to figure out how fully God's sovereignty and man's choice works together, you can write a book and you can be famous. But people have been trying for 2,000 years and have never done it. But the point is, God is sovereign, but people make real choices. The choice that he made, that Judas made, was a real choice. God was not forcing him to do that. He chose to betray Christ. And yet what's saying, in the midst of that, God's not up there going, oh my goodness, things are falling apart. What am I going to do now? The whole point is, this is going just as we have told you it will go. He told them three times it's going to happen. They didn't really understand it or believe it. He told them, he referred to it other times in the Gospel of Mark. And now he's telling them, you know what? This is all coming down, happening in the way that I wanted it to be. Not wanted to see Judas do it, but Judas is going to do this. And he's made a choice, and he's made the wrong choice. Now notice, if you would, this beautiful passage that's, uh, referring to the Lord's Supper. In this section right here in verse 22, it said, As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to him and said, Take it, take it, this is my body. Let's stop for a second, slow up for a second. In that culture, if we're, if we're correct in assuming that this is a Passover Seder, there's several things you can remember about it. First of all, a Passover Seder that they have at this time of Passover is something that's a joyous and important time, and it's a family deal. All the family goes to it. And what you'd have is the father, or if there's a grandfather, whoever's sort of the patriarch of the thing, he's the one who sort of leads the service. Okay? And he may be asking questions to the children along the way. But during that time, what would happen is they would get together and they would have a blessing for the meal that was coming, they'd have a blessing for their event, and then they would have this and they would have some, some small things to eat, and then they would have a cup of wine. And so what they would have is a little cup of wine that they would take. In the Passover Seder, there was four glasses of wine. Now, some of you are thinking, if I had four glasses of wine, you'd be pulling me out from under the table. But remember, this is going on over hours. Secondly, often the wine at a thing like that was diluted with water. So it wasn't like 100% wine. Also, they didn't have, it wasn't like one of these big beer mugs, okay? It's a small cup. 
So nobody here is drunk while this is going on, but it is part of the important thing in what they do. There's four cups. So the first cup has been come out. And so what happens after that, and it talks about the fact that he said he took this out. And so what would be is that Jesus here, in the second one, is that he would take the bread. And this is very common. He's acting as like the father to this group of disciples. He would break the bread and take it, and they would pass it down among them. So everybody had it. And then he has this very short, very short phrase, take it, this is my body. When Jesus said that, he did not expect his disciples to think, oh, we're going to eat Jesus' hand right now or something. He didn't expect that any way that that bread was going to change from anything other than bread. I mean, these guys may not have been rocket scientists, but they knew the idea. This is a metaphor. When Jesus said, take it, this is my body, he said, oh, it, this is in some way of showing how the fact that we are receiving Christ. No one thought that they were going to cut Jesus' arm off or anything. It was all just a metaphor. But they recognized it's that a day of union with Christ. And so he tells me, he says, take it, this is my body. And then it says, then he took a cup. Okay, so he's given them the, the, that which we talked about thing. Here comes the cup. This is the second one. He gave it to them, he said, and they, and they all drank from it. So now we've on the second cup, and this is the third one's coming up. He said, this is my blood that establishes a covenant. Your translators might say, this is the blood of the covenant that is shed for many. Stop there for a minute. Again, Jesus is saying, guys, look back to what happened in our history We've already looked back in the very beginning of the story here about how we were rescued from Egypt, how God brought us to the promised land. But he said, look back what happened when they got to the promised land, well, even before the promised land, before they even got to Mount Sinai. When they got to Sinai, they killed these oxen, and they poured their blood into these bowls. And they had all the people gathered tightly together, and then they started flinging, flinging blood on the top of these people. That sounds a little gross, and it sounds a little weird. But I'll tell you what, I thought there's nobody that ever forgot about that event. And half the women are going, how am I ever going to get this out of this shirt? You know? But the point of it is, they did something like, you know, this is the costliness of what's going on here. These oxen, these lamb, these sheep, what we're seeing here is the fact that these animals... That God is taking, allowing them to take the take the sin and the guilt and the punishment that we deserve. There's this idea of the, of the fact that God is you know, what we have is He's taking that away through that. And so you have this thing where it says, "Do you remember what happened?" Well, you weren't alive at that point, but remember how we've learned all through our generations that there Moses they were throwing the blood, and He's saying, "I am making a covenant with you." The blood is the covenant that showed that I have a relationship with you. You are my people. And he goes on to tell them that's going on. And so Jesus goes right to that when he wants to talk about it. He said, this is my blood that establishes or makes the covenant. Again, none of the disciples are thinking, oh, well, you know, da-da-da. They recognize what's going on here. They're saying, this is what connects. The wine looks like blood. And again, they're receiving it. Just as they received what Jesus had in the, in the bread, now they're receiving it in the blood. In the blood, it really looks like blood. And so he said to them, it is shed for many. This is the blood, my blood, established a covenant that shed for many. And that phrase for many doesn't mean like just only for some people, like 12 of you. It's used to say like for many, many people. In other words, not all will come into that, but many will. And so what you have here in the Lord's Supper is so incredibly important. By the way, there'd be that third cup at that point, where after Jesus would tell them, take this wine and drink it. So they've now had three cups. 
And so it's interesting here that you're saying they're understanding what they understand. We don't know all of it, but they're getting the picture that somehow this is happening with Jesus in which we are understanding more and more that our connectedness to him and that he's providing a way for us to be, to be strengthened by him. And so if you would, look at the passage, or the next passage it has, where he said, verse 25. Jesus said, I assure you, I'll no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in the kingdom of God. It's interesting, Jesus has not yet drunk the fourth cup. Three cups have been drunk, but not the fourth. He's saying, I'm going to die here, and I'm not going to take the fourth one. The next time we get to drink together, it's going to be in the kingdom. It's going to be in God's presence. It's going to be, as we call the messianic banquet of the people of all the, those who have known Christ over the years brought together. So I'll drink the fourth cup then, and we'll be together forever. And so at the end of that, they would go out, and it goes on. It said, after singing psalms, they went out to Mount Sinai. This passage here is so important. Let me just read Then Jesus said to them, all of you are going to run away because it's written. And he quotes from the psalm, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been resurrected, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. And good old Peter told him, well, even if everybody else runs away, I certainly will not. I assure you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. But he kept insisting, oh, I have to die with you. I'll never deny you. And they all said the same thing. I'm glad they said that. It wasn't just Peter. You can count on me, Jesus. Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, you, we're, we're tough guys. We, you know, we work hard out in the world. We're, we're sharp. And then it says, really? He kept insisting. He said, I'll never deny you. And they all said the same thing. And within a few hours, they all denied him. Did they want to do it? Sure they did. Were they terrified? Yes. But when Jesus came, the time when he needed them most, they all skedaddled. And they were gone. And he was alone. I entitled this message, Abandon, because that's exactly what it was. Twelve men who had seen him do such remarkable miracles a man that had such compassion that was just hard to believe. And suddenly, at his greatest moment of need, none of the guys are there to help him. And of course, as we understand, as we go through the scriptures, we realize in that brokenness, in that horror of that time, there was one person that was very aware of what was happening, was his father. Three times, Father, if there's any way this cup can be taken away. Notice they get the idea of the cup. No. Father, is there any way this cup can be taken No, there isn't. Is there any other way than this way of the cross? No, there's not. And then the famous phrase, Father, your will be done. If that is the price to save the lives of these 12 guys of mine that just ran out of here, I'll do it. It's your request, it's your desire that there would be one final sacrificial lamb and it will be the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I'll do it. He asked him three times, are you sure there's not another way? No. There's got to be another way. No. There's got to be some other No, there's no other way. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, could carry the sins of all mankind. 
He had to be fully God and fully, fully human. You couldn't ask an angel to do it for it. It had to be a man. But Jesus is a man. He's a real man. He's the ultimate man. But he's also the Son of God. And he takes the sins of the world upon him. And that God's justice was fully met. Sin was conquered in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But his love and his compassion are shown in the fact that he rose again from the dead and we are united with him. This is why for us the Lord's Supper is so significant. We're going to do this in just a few moments. But as we get ready to come to it, and as we sing a song, I want you to be thinking about this. What was the price of my redemption? It was the blood of the Son of God, abandoned for us that we might never be abandoned by him. Keep that in your mind as we sing this song, and then we're going to come to the table.